0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, good morning, Gail, and welcome to our second question-and-answer session um, where you're going to be answering questions from the IMC online community. Uh, We had many questions again this time, and um, we're going to try to answer as many as we can. So the first question is from Tracy in uh, Texas, Odessa, and here's her question. Sometimes I catch my mind finding ingenious ways to keep me stuck. Why is the mind so invested in resisting liberation?
1: So it's a great question, and um I think that's really Tracy's job to find out that uh, that's a big part of what the path to liberation entails is uh, having the mindfulness, the presence to look into what are the forces in the mind that keep you distracted, that keep you caught up to keep you um, stuck, as she says and, um, and as we become more present, as mindfulness gets stronger it's possible to see more clearly what are the forces that drive us uh, when we're not very present, it can seem unconscious or seem uh, uh, confusing or unknown. What is it that uh, drives what, what we do? But as we slow down and are mindful, and, and uh, we can see more clearly. And so, uh, to f- not just to, to try to understand it, but to feel our way into this question. Um, what, are, what is it that we're interested in? To study what the mind's interested in and um and then to study the emotional fuel for that what is the what emotions are driving the the focus on our preoccupations uh, what are the beliefs that drive it what are the uh, sensations in the body that seem to come together with this and uh, it's very interesting to study the glue or the gravitational force between our interests and us it's one thing to think about dinner, for example, it's another thing, how interested we are in thinking about dinner. And to study the strength of the preoccupation and the nature of it, um, the glue is different than the, in, than the thing we're interested in. And so a lot of this question Tracy needs to answer herself.
0: Thank you. The next question comes from Ronaldo in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, he actually has two questions in one. He says, "The simplicity of Buddhism is fascinating, but when you like to study, it is a totally different ballgame." My interest in Buddhism began four years ago when I read a book by Alan Watts. Shortly thereafter, I met and I identified with the work of Suzuki Roshi, Ajahn Chah, Thich Nhat Hanh, Jack Kornfield, and you, Gil Fransdale. This year. I went to California to meet you personally and spend some time in San Francisco Zen Center and Spirit Rock. Then I realized that to have a better development of a practice, it was necessary to focus my studies in a school and only one teacher. So I decided to focus on Thich Nhat Hanh and you. I think it's a perfect combination. But I miss listening to others, especially Alan Watts, because Buddhism for me is also a kind of leisure but there's not enough time. So my question is, how do you balance your studies, your practice, your family? How do you organize as many exercises and practices as loving-kindness, meditation, the nine contemplation, body as in permanent meditation, and so many others? The other day you said that life is perhaps a bit short to study everything. So what is the better way to enjoy these many wonderful teachings?
1: Well, uh, thank you, Rinaldo, for the question. And uh, I think maybe the answer can be found in your opening statement about the simplicity of Buddhism. And uh, I think it's important to keep it simple because um, the door that opens up of practice is... um, it's like a maybe it's not a door, but it's like a like a hourglass. On one side of the hourglass uh, is all the things we can study and all the things we could do and keeping busy, running around. And if we do too much, uh, we clog up the narrow part of the hourglass. But if you keep it really simple, then you can go through that narrow part of the hourglass, and it opens up again to a bigger world. After that, and a lot of the things that you had to study before become obvious to you in your own experience. You don't have to study anymore. You just realize that you understand. So I think there's uh, danger in doing too many things. Doing too many Dharma activities uh, gets in the way of the Dharma. So you have to somehow be wise enough to simplify what you do so you can get the the most out of uh, what you're doing. And um, the... um, So, um, even reading, for example, I found that when I'm uh, mostly uh, strongly connected to my practice, that I will... um, Just reading one page or even one paragraph of a Dharma book is enough for me to uh, really uh, live with that whole page or that teaching for a whole day. And so I would encourage you to maybe study less, maybe do fewer practices and choose the ones that... Um, and let, let them come alive. And then you don't have to choose so much between family and work and study. Uh, choosing a few practices, they can fill your... Um, uh, uh, you bring them into your family, into your work, into your daily life, and uh, that they can all be integrated and work together.
0: So the next question is from Nico in the Netherlands. And he asks. For a few weeks now, I download all audio Dharma files about meditation from you. I try to meditate, but the only thing I do is sit. I have a serious back problem, so sitting upright is difficult for me. The only thing I can do is move. I try lying down, but then I'll fall asleep. Concentration is my second problem. I try to memorize the Metta Sutta, but I have problems with a first sentence. I must tell you that I have used marijuana for a long time and I know it destroyed a lot in me. I am clean for about five or six years. I hope you can give me some instructions, personal lessons, which can help me meditate and or concentrate for more than one minute.
1: So, Nico, um, it's a nice question. and. I think, I hope, I, uh, I understand from the question that uh, you're new to all this. You said you've been doing it for a few weeks. So it certainly takes patience. It's one of the first lessons you need to do uh, learn when you're going to meditate. And it takes, a, it takes more than a few weeks to really settle into it. And uh, in the beginning, maybe six months, you want to really focus on the real basic aspects of meditation and uh, working on your posture, work, finding a good position to sit in. Slowly developing concentration, uh, step by step, and um, not to measure how it's going just after a few weeks of sitting. Um, Having said that, uh, I wonder whether, uh, if you have trouble sitting and trouble laying down, another option would be to do walking meditation. And you'll find on IMC's website uh, written instructions, maybe in the articles page, on doing uh, walking meditation. And um, it's a wonderful meditation in its own right. Uh, it's very powerful for some people. It allows people to stay in motion and movement. People have uh, back problems. And some people find it e- find it's easier to concentrate when they're actually moving and, and uh, doing something. Um, the other thing I wonder, you asked for something, you know, personal lesson. Um, uh, you know, there's not much information about you personally here. But I do wonder whether... Um, before you really can settle down into a serious meditation practice, where there uh, it'd be really good for you to uh, develop uh, a real strong and regular practice of physical exercise. And um, perhaps swimming can work really well. And some people find that uh, being mindful while you swim develops concentration and helps presence. People with back problems often can swim. And there's something very powerful that can happen. Uh, uh, that settles and relaxes the mind that opens up and clears out many of the stuff that's accumulated and uh, kind of heals something, especially when people have taken drugs for a long time uh, and the mind maybe is not as sharp as it could be, that there's something about exercise and also eating really good food that can really be a, a great help. And um, I'd encourage you that uh, in addition to meditation, you, if you haven't already, start a regular practice of uh, physical exercise.
0: Thank you. Uh, next question is from Jay in Gainesville, Florida. He asks, what insight can you offer into the question of why breath and metta, are especially recommended as objects of samadhi practice? I was surprised recently to learn that there are an additional 38 objects of meditation in the Theravada tradition. Can you say why these other 38 are not recommended?
1: Um, in the tradition it says that uh, meditation on breath and meditation on loving kindness are always useful and um, they're kind of universal practices the other practices are useful in specific situations for specific people and so um, the tendency is to offer people the practices that are always useful in all situations for all people and or most people and uh, so that's why the breath and metta are, tend to be given. Also, uh, uh, the breath meditation is the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the 40 classical Theravada meditations that is said to, that uh, not only works for everyone, or most people, the greatest number of people, but also um, it, it can take a person in much further in their practice than some of the other practices that uh, are offered. And um, so some of the other 40, for example, are contemplation practices. Uh, uh, contemplating or thinking about um, death is a very uh, powerful practice that is taught sometimes uh, contemplating um, the, uh, the nature of the Buddha the Dharma and the Sangha included in the 40 and, um, and then there's a variety of what's called kasina meditations which is uh, medita- concentra- specific concentration practices that involve uh, focusing on a visual object and then um, developing deep concentration on that visual object And some people do that practice. It's a different style of practice than uh, what we do here at IMC. And the tendency in the history of Buddhism is that among these 40 different practices is different lineages, different teachers, different uh, traditions uh, specialize in uh, a few of them and really do those really well because they found them to be very effective or useful. Um, And that has to do with the difference between um, different approaches to awakening Uh, there are some people who uh, focus mostly through mindfulness practice and some people who focus on awakening primarily through doing concentration practice and so depending on which approach you're taking you would do different kind of practices in our particular tradition we focus a little bit more on mindfulness and concentration Um, and so uh, the breath meditation um, has uh, has the virtue of actually doing both And so we need a certain amount of concentration, but also we're trying to develop mindfulness. And uh, breath works really well to do both. Uh, Loving-kindness is possible to do for deep concentration. And on retreats in our tradition, that's where we teach uh, uh, loving-kindness as a concentration practice. But mostly we teach metta as a way of developing greater friendliness um, towards ourselves and our life and to others. Because we found that friendliness is a wonderful uh, foundation or support for any kind of mindfulness practice we want to do. It complements it. And we find that those two practices uh, work really well together, and um, so that's why we focus on them.
0: Thank you. Next question is from Rose in Menlo Park, California. My question has to do with finances. How is it possible to stay in the moment and plan for retirement? Money is the only area where I cannot be present. I am always worried if I will have enough. Should I be doing something different, or be doing more? It seems wrong to let go of it, because if I'm wrong, I will be screwed in the future.
1: That's a good question. and um, uh, I think that uh, it's easy to hear the teachings of uh, mindfulness and interpret them to mean that you're only thing you're supposed to do, allowed to do, is to stay in the present mo- <laughs> present moment. Um, and some people put too much emphasis on the present moment. The real emphasis uh, in Buddhism is n- not on being present, but on not clinging, and um, and thereby not suffering. So the, we focus on being in the present to, to just a, enough degree that we can help ourselves not suffer, not to cling, not to resist, not to cause trouble for ourselves. Um, and so, it's um, you know, not necessary to always be in the present moment in some uh, narrow way, but to have enough present moment attention that when we are thinking about the future or are thinking about the past, we're sensitive to how we're doing it, sensitive uh, if whether we're clinging or whether there's fear or worry or greed. Um, operating as we're thinking about the past and the future. If there's not, then maybe there's no problem about thinking about the past and the future. It's possible to think about the future and um, be very cognizant that in the present moment what you're doing is thinking about the future. And um, then you're present, and you keep thinking about the future. A wise life, uh, there has to be some consideration of uh, future and some planning, there has to be some uh, remembrance of the past and the lessons of the past. And um, to only be in the present moment without any reference to past or future is um, to live a probably a pretty narrow, s- superficial life. Um, so, please think about the future. Think, think about your retirement. Think about your finances. But as you do it, uh, really use your mindfulness to understand how you're doing it. What comes into play as you do it? Uh, What are the beliefs and emotions and fears that you have? Uh, You talk about you're you're worried as you talk about it. Many people are, and uh, and because of that, it's a really rich area of exploration, of investigation, and um, and to really look at uh, what is driving that worry. What are the fears? What are the sources of them? Uh, uh, and learn maybe, and, and rather than kind of keep thinking about your finances, really look carefully at the fear itself. Doing mindfulness of fear, feeling the fear in the body, uh, trying to understand the beliefs that are operating around the fear. Probably with finances, there's a lot, a lot of beliefs. Some of them have to do with our life history. Some of them have to do with uh, quite rational concerns. Some of them have to do with the irrational concerns that we have. And um, sometimes it takes a lot of a mature thinking actually about uh, our situation and our life to know how to um, think in a wise way about finances and to think about what we actually really need in order to be secure and safe. Um, there's no easy answer for this uh, but please uh, uh, give your financial life the all the all the wise consideration that you can and while you're doing it uh, try not to suffer try not to cling.
0: Thank you. Next is a question from Chuck in Argyle, Texas. Thank you for this opportunity to ask questions. I have listened for a long time and have many, but I think this one gets to the root of most of them. What is that which is enlightened?
1: Well, I wonder why why that's at root of the question, and uh, it's. Um, you know, what's driving the question, how it fits with everything that he's saying. Because generally, um, uh, uh, you know, for someone who becomes uh, freer, who lets go of their clinging, becomes more awake, more enlightened, that's not really an interesting question. And uh, it doesn't, it's not really helpful. Uh, what's helpful is uh, understanding that we cling and understanding how we can release that clinging. And who is it or what is it that releases the clinging? What is it that gets free? What gets liberated? Um, Is an abstract question that um, doesn't necessarily, doesn't help much in the process of freedom itself. Um, But perhaps uh, somewhat uh, simplistically, to answer the question, what is it, what is that which is enlightened? Um, It is that which clings whatever that is (laughs) and um, so uh, I hope this is satisfying enough Um, my hope is that uh, um, to offer you an answer that encourages you to turn around and look more deeply at yourself at uh, what's the source of the question Uh, what uh, drives the question Uh, you said that's the root of all your questions but uh, what's the root of that question
0: Thank you. This is a question from Francesca in Estero, Florida. Once a year I do a Vipassana retreat, the Ganko 10-day silent meditation program. The principal message I get from the program is that Anapanasati, the strict observation of sensation for the rings of the nose, followed by the body scanning is the, the purest form of meditation a technique that was preserved in Burma for the last 2,600 years, and that it is this technique that the Buddha used before his experience of enlightenment. They also say that it is this technique which sharpens the mind in a way that is so strong that no other meditation technique can replicate. Is this true? And how would anybody really know this as 2,600 years have gone by? Or is this a form of branding, marketing?
1: Yes, uh, I don't think there's any evidence that you uh, can point to that uh, there's been an unbroken lineage of uh, meditation in the way that the Goenka tradition says that goes back to the time of the Buddha. Um, I know that that claim is sometimes made, but uh, uh, the evidence hasn't been there for it. Uh, The evidence is that it's a relatively modern technique that uh, comes out of Burma about a hundred years ago or so. And... um, the, um, now the, 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 the practice of Goenka the, uh, Breath meditation and the body scan Is a very powerful practice And doing it on uh, 10 day retreats Or 30 day retreats Which they do sometimes Is a very powerful uh, uh, practice And people get very concentrated Very mindful very fast And um, there can be a great depth Of uh, practice in that tradition So I have a lot of respect for it But uh, it has always struck me As very odd the way that they insist on the purity of their practice as opposed to other practices. And it seems to go uh, against the grain of how I've understood Buddhism, uh, where the focus has not been on, uh, on purity of practice, but uh, uh, what is uh, helpful uh, for the people who practice it. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that the Goenka approach is help, very helpful for some people, and I'm confident that other approaches are very helpful for other people. And different practices also have uh, benefits in different domains, areas of life. Uh, the, uh, I don't know if it's true for all people who do Goenka practice, but a fair number of people I've known f- have found that the Goenka practice, in a way, helps them go deep, but doesn't help them very well in the integration of uh, the uh, practice in the width and breadth of their life. Um, and, uh, and they found that other uh, forms of vipassana, other forms of Buddhist practice, um, has helped them much more with the integration of uh, the depth of practice in their lives um, and so there's so many different approaches and so the different approaches uh, you know, suit different temperaments, different kinds of people um, perhaps the Gwenka approach is, it is a very powerful approach and maybe it, um, it does uh, I'll say it this way that, uh, in the history of Buddhism, there have been different approaches to doing practice and letting the path unfold for people. Uh, One approach is to go really deep fast, and then spend years integrating that into one's life. Another approach is to go slow and do the integration practice uh, all along the way. After 5, 10, 20 years, they both come to the same place, but, um, but the approach was different. And um, which one is better? You know, I don't think there's any need to decide which one is better um, myself. <clears throat> um, but uh, each person needs to find out <clears throat> what is best and most effective for them and helpful for them, and what resonates uh, best with uh, uh, the uh, with the w- whatever wisdom they can bring to bear uh, on their practice and the tradition they're part of.
0: Thank you we have time for one more mm-hmm. question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is from Merrill in Los Altos, California. I am writing to ask for some clarity in the meaning of the metaphrases. What did the Buddha specifically mean with each phrase? It seems at times that other things have been read into the phrases, and I'm not sure of the pure essence of the phrases and Buddha's intentions. For instance, what exactly does "safe"? and free from harm and danger referred to? Does safety mean from bodily and mental harm? Or does it mean free from delusion, free from clinging? Does this mean that you're wishing for another to take right action based on Scylla so that the conditions that arise in their lives and mind are with ease and non-clinging? What is this wish for safety exactly that we offer to another? What specifically does well-being refer to? mental stability, equanimity, ease, wisdom, physical well-being, ease with whatever is, non-attachment to pain and aches, total freedom from attachment, Nibbana. I noticed that when I first started Metta Practice, there was a me and other, different from selfing, separation. And over time that separation, that gap, has decreased in experiencing the interconnection we share from the changes in perception that have come from the practice. I'm wondering, as I begin to lead metta at prison, if there's a way from the beginning to phrase things, to lessen the selfing when offering metta. Or is the lessening of selfing a byproduct of the metta experience itself and let it be?
1: Well, thank you for the question. There's actually a lot of questions there, so I don't know if I'll get to all of them. But, um... Um, um, I don't know if it's possible to know what the Buddha's original intention or understanding of uh, the phrases are um, they're, as many of them are quite broad in scope and maybe they're meant to uh, be all encompassing for any possibility um, that uh, it's a wonderful thing for people to s- feel safe uh, in, in any in all domains of their life um, in relationship to the world around them, in relationship to themselves, their inner life. Um, uh, Well-being is a beautiful phrase, I think, it's it's somewhat vague. And and I think it means well-being, which means an inner sense of happiness that uh, is not uh, equated with pleasure. So it comes from a sense of uh, contentment, peace, uh, well-being inside, it's not the kind of happiness that comes from, <clears throat> you know, um, winning, the, winning the lottery or the happiness that comes from uh, uh, maybe um, uh, conquering your enemies or winning a, you know, beating someone in a, in a competitive game, but it's the happiness of uh, deep inner uh, well-being that we carry with us, regardless of circumstances. And I think that the phrases are fine to understand, uh, to be wide in scope. Uh, And each of us infuses the words with what's meaningful for us, uh, what our heart wishes for other people. And so if we have much more specific understandings of what safety is or well-being is, um, that's uh, that's fine because uh, we're not supposed to fit ourselves into someone else's model of what these phrases mean, but rather it's supposed to give expression to what's in our hearts, what uh, inspires us, what moves us. So when we wish someone safety and well-being, uh, we use as a reference point, uh, you know, our understanding, our best understanding of that situation, what that means, and what inspires us. Um, and as you teach um, loving kindness to others, how can you lessen the self-other kind of divide? Um, I think that just comes with time. Um, I think that uh, mindfulness practice uh, can help a lot. But I wouldn't worry so much about the self-other divide. Uh, Just as with you, found that that changed over time. There's a natural growth and development that as both metta and mindfulness develops, uh, it's not possible to maintain a sharp divide between self and other. And it's fine just to let it unfold uh, slowly in its own time, uh, that realization. And... um, um, you know, and so it, uh, I think it's very important to not leave people only doing metta for themselves, but uh, to always remember that to do metta for others as well. If it's only for oneself, then maybe it can lead to greater selfing. But if it's, um, if it's, um, you know, others are included, that hopefully will lessen it to some degree.